How is your work life going? Business? Home? Social? How about your health? Could you make some changes? Of course you could, but how and where to start? This is Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. In this program, we'll help you identify and make the changes in your life that need to be made. And by doing so, increase your potential for success. And now, here's your host, Hemda Mizrahi. Welcome to Turn the Page. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, joined today by marketing advisor and copywriter, Kevin Donlin. Kevin is the author of Marketing Multipliers, 11 Simple Tools to Grow Your Business. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Hemda. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, I'm excited to talk about your book, Marketing Multipliers. And I'd love to hear what your goal was in writing the book and also how it reflects the expertise you've built over the years to become such an effective marketing advisor and copywriter. Well, so my, my idea behind the book was to kind of scale myself. I'm a copywriter, which means I write words that sell for my clients, sales letters, email promotions, print ads, web pages, etc. I can only do, you know, a couple projects in a month, good size projects. So the book is a way to uh, get my ideas out to a wider audience. And I've described them as tools because with the right tool, you could do something that would take a lot of time and expertise to learn as a skill. The analogy uh, I often use is, look, it, it could take you an hour to learn how to make a fire with a, a bow drill and a couple of sticks, or you can strike a match and have a flame in two seconds. So I like to give people books of matches so they can start their own flames in their business. That's a very tortured analogy. But yeah, I like to give people tools so that uh, they don't have to spend 20 years learning the skills that I have. I would guess once you get into the work with clients, it's such a relief to them because when we think about our businesses, there's so much complexity that we see and so many things we we think we need to get to. And it seems like we're going to get to them in the longer term, but you're helping people to have more of an immediate experience of marketing impact and corresponding business development. Sure. I hope to do that. I mean, you can only do so much in a day as an entrepreneur, business owner, coach, whatever. So you need to surround yourself with team members that you can trust. Uh, you know, I serve as a trusted advisor to my clients. I have people who do projects for me. I have an assistant who handles all my, you know, transactions and the paperwork and such. And I know she's working in the background for me so that I can uh, work on my highest level abilities. And that's what I try to do for my clients. It's not everyone's natural ability to sell, perhaps. And so I help them do that uh, on a wide scale. And let's talk about the definition of a marketing multiplier. Sure. So it's based on a military idea. There's a concept called force multiplier. Back in ancient history, um, so I went to Michigan State University, which makes me a bona fide Spartan. But the actual Spartans um, in Greece, um, legend has it, and I think it's a fact too, that they they fought about 150,000 Persians at the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC. And there were about 300 of them, and that's a 501 <laughs> advantage that the Persians had. But the Spartans used a force multiplier, which is defined as anything that makes uh, anything that makes a fighting force more effective. The force multiplier in their case was geography. They chose a bottleneck to defend, a narrow uh, mountain pass. And as a result, the Persians had to file down pretty much one-on-one. -on -one. And so their numerical advantage was totally canceled. And the Spartans were able to hold them off for two full days. So that's an example of a force multiplier. It can be geography. It can be your morale. It can be your weapons, your training. Those are force multipliers. So a couple of years ago, I thought, well, you know, what could be the 
translation to marketing. Is there such a thing as a marketing multiplier, something that would make your marketing more effective? Well, it turns out there are. I've got 11 of them in my book. I come up with a new one every month for my uh, members in my Marketing Multipliers Club. But my criteria for a really good marketing multiplier, it's got to work for a busy entrepreneur, someone who's not a marketing professional. They're typically small actions that deliver big results. They're typically low cost or even no cost. And they're often tangible because, you know, a lot of businesses online these days, people fall into the trap of depending solely on email or social media to sell their, you know, services or products. And so I try to give people tangible ways to make a very literal impact on the people that they're trying to do business with. And so that's, uh, those, that's kind of the background uh, on mar- marketing multipliers. I would guess that also it's a little bit of a relief for some of your clients because there's so much of a focus now on online and it seems like such a saturated market in many ways, just the the whole online community reaching out to the online community, getting attention. So some of the strategies that you recommend are offline strategies. Correct. Yeah. And um, you raise a good point. You know, there's a difference between effectiveness and uh, ease of operation, I guess you could say. It's very easy to push the send button on an email. It's very easy to post something uh, on Twitter, but how effective is it at the end of the day? Oftentimes not quite as effective as a simple postcard or a phone call or uh, a meeting over lunch. And so tangible marketing, you know, back in the nineties, we called it meat space, (laughs) M-E-A-T, meat, you know, talking to people who are humans and actually pressing the flesh. There's always going to be a place for that in your marketing toolbox. And I try to give people tangible ideas that are, again, simple, low cost, and, and often fun to use. Fun is a good one, right? Because we want to be, we want to be motivated. <laughs> yeah. And- yeah, if it's not fun, I try not to do it, really. I mean, there's a, there's a place to, uh, you know, do the hard work, whether it's your, you know, your workouts or, or other parts of your life. You got to do the hard work, of course. But when in doubt, try to make it fun. That's one of my mottos. So if you're feeling like you're reaching out to people and there are lots of busy signals that you're encountering, this is a good time in our podcast to pay close attention as we start to talk about some of the tools. And I'd love to start with the unproposal. Mm, Okay, that's a good one. So that is basically a sales letter in disguise. For a lot of folks, you get a request to submit a price quote or a proposal. Well, think about how you shop for an electrician or a plumber. You typically call three, get three price quotes, and oftentimes you'll take the cheapest one or maybe the one in the middle. And if you're competing with other vendors and you're submitting a proposal, you know, you're competing on price at the end of the day. There's no way around it. So what I try to do is I don't want to play any game that I don't think I can win. So it starts with don't play by other people's rules. So if they're all sending a proposal, you send an unproposal. You don't call it that. But, you know, call it anything but a proposal, call it anything but a price quote. Um, In my book, I explain, I think it's marketing multiplier number three. It it starts with just giving the thing another name. So call it a a blueprint, um, a project outline, you know, call it a game plan, a summary. Just don't call it a proposal. Don't call it uh, a price quote. Doing, making that simple change, which costs you nothing, by the way. Uh, immediately recasts your price quote as something else. So if they're comparing three of you, there's going to be an apple, an apple, and then you're a pineapple. You're an orange because you've given it a different name. So that's the beginning of the unproposal. There are about 11 different elements, I think, uh, nine actually. Another good thing to put in your unproposal are notes from your call. If you've talked to your prospect before sending them the price, and of course you really need to do that, 
or if you've met them in person, include a section at the start that says, here's what I think you said. And simply, uh, you know, spin back at them what they told you on the phone or in, in your meeting. This does a couple of things. It shows that you were actually paying attention. It shows you were listening to what they were saying. And believe it or not, that's a big deal because most people are just, uh, they're a million miles away mentally. They're not paying attention. So if you can just do nothing else but take good notes and share them with your prospect and say, here's what I think you said, boom, you've made some immediate rapport with them before they've even gotten through the rest of the proposal or the unproposal in this case. Um, let me give you a couple other elements that goes into it. Uh, you want to include testimonials. Include a section near the end that says, here's what other people say about what I do. You, you need testimonials. They're, they're like Krugerrands. You can never have too many in your life. You, you can get the testimonials from your LinkedIn profile, from your website. I hope you have some already um, from, you know, nice things past clients have said about you, but um, include a couple of testimonials. Two, three, four, five are really good to do. And then another thing, final one I'll give you, again, there are like nine different elements, but if what I like to do is include a picture of the client and or their website um, as part of, and you just stick it in there in your bullet points, describing what you're going to do for them. But I like to include a picture of the client. I had a client who was on TV and I included his picture. Bam, he bought really fast <laughs> because um, people identify with themselves, right? And so if you can show them a picture of themselves or their website or their business, a shot of their store, this again tells them that while wow, you're taking a, a direct interest in them and that this is just for them. Another thing, I'll give you another real quick one. Name the project after the client. So if I were doing something for you, Hemda, I would call it the Hemda project. Or if I were doing something for, you know, um, Joe Smith, I'd call it the Joe Smith project. Don't just say this is our deluxe model and this is our standard model. Give it the client, the prospect's name. And be, you do this because, again, we identify with our names, with ourselves. You know, your name is the most beautiful world, word in any language. And if you name the project after the, the prospect, if they say no to your bid, they're literally saying no to themselves. People don't like to do that. So it, it gives you a little psychological edge and makes it more likely that they're going to say yes to your project because they're really saying yes to themselves. So those are some elements of the unproposal. That's literally a 45-minute seminar in itself, but um, it's described in my book. And if you, if you do nothing else than use what I've just given here, you can get more acceptance to your proposals. You'll get more people buying from you. And all of this costs you zero, by the way. This is all free changes you can make to the proposals you're already sending costs you nothing, but I, I, I promise you it's going to get more people buying from you. Kevin, it seems that the point you're underscoring is the importance of presenting yourself with a fresh face and also presenting your client as being unique in your eyes, that you're able to really see the client and focus in a very precise way on what the client has shared with you and also what your observations are. Exactly. Yeah. You, you, um, you know, it, it, it means a lot that you can stand out and be unique. You have to strive hard to do that. And these things will help your proposals appear utterly unique. And then, yes, you are exactly right. You know, anything you can do to show the client that you understand them, that you've done your homework, that this is not uh, an off-the-shelf project that everybody gets. This is just for you and your needs. Um, that's going to make you more effective in your marketing. Where does the pricing come in? Because oftentimes a client... If they're, especially if they're sensitive around price point or their primary decision-making is around price point, is going to want to know that bottom line very quickly. Where do you fit the pricing into your process? Well, the price goes inside the unproposal 
probably around three quarters through, maybe 80% through. The the placing is not as important. It should come after you've described everything you're going to do for the client. So never lead with the price. That's, you know, that's a, a huge mistake. Um, but of course, you can't dance around the subject. What I like to do is give prospects at least two choices, two project options, never just one. Um, sometimes I'll give them three. The reason you do this is because if you say, here's the project I'm going to do for you, one option, then they can say yes or no. And yes is good, no is bad. So there, there's a chance they're going to say no to you. If you give them two options, suddenly their choices are either or. And they're more likely to pick one or the other as opposed to just saying no. So one thing you can do, no matter how much you charge, is give people more than one option. I suggest two at a minimum, probably three at a maximum. So that's an easy way to you know, get more people to buy no matter how much you're charging. The second one sounds pedestrian, but the research I've seen bears it out and my own experience does. Don't just say, you know, it's going to be $500. Say only $500. For some reason, that word only goes a long way towards minimizing the, the price and its impact. Final idea on pricing, of course, is if you can split the prices into two. So if it's $500, I will often say it's, it's two monthly installments of only $299. That adds up to what, you know, 598. So if you can break your price into two, don't call it a uh, price, call it an installment. So again, I'm a copywriter. Words are very important to me. And this is a phrase I've seen work very well for myself and my clients over the years. Say it's two monthly installments of only blank. So those are some tips on pricing. Uh, of course, another idea that, um, I've run with for, two decades. It, for some people, it's very scary, but include a money-back guarantee. That'll get you even more people buying from you. If you don't love the results, I'll revise it or refund your money, your choice. So a money-back guarantee, no matter what your price is, is going to get more people buying from you. Now, are you going to give refunds? Yes, you will. But if your sales double, are you really going to care? Because that's the potential here. Um, so you have to do your numbers, test a money-back guarantee on a small scale, with limited downside. But I, if you're any good at what you do, a money-back guarantee can be an absolute game changer for you. So Kevin, are you suggesting a 100% money-back guarantee? Yes, I do. And here's, here's a fun fact about that. So I've used money-back guarantees in every business I've ever had. I actually started a resume service back in 1996. I called it guaranteed resumes because the guarantee was a big part of the service. Uh, your resume will get results or it's free. That was my promise. That turned out to be a very, very, very lucrative promise. Within two months, I had to hire two local competitors to handle my overflow. And yes, we gave refunds, but I didn't care <laughs> because we were very, very busy. The thing with a money-back guarantee, especially 100%, is that People, unless they're jerks, unless you really get off on the wrong foot with them, they want you to succeed and they don't want to get their money back. You can kind of, you know, smell people at the beginning who are going to be a problem and you just refuse to work with them. So if you're, you know, if your senses, if your ability to suss out bad clients uh, is, is any good, you're going to sense at the beginning, nah, maybe this person is not so good, so I just won't work with them. But um, even if someone says, you know what, this isn't working, I'd like a refund. What you can do is say, okay, well, we're in a refund situation here. So you have a choice. I can refund, I can revise the project for you or refund you 25%, 50% or 100%. So again, I'm giving them choices here. Remember earlier I said, don't just give them one project, give them two. So that's an either or proposition. Same idea here. If someone asks for a refund, 
tell them, um, here are your choices. I can revise the project for you or refund you 25% or 50% or 100%. Well, guess what? In my experience, this is over 20 years of doing refunds. Uh, half the people will take a 50% refund or they'll let you revise the project and won't ask for a refund at all. So even though I say 100% money back guarantee, I only give full refunds about half the time. And those refunds are only about once or twice a year. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes with a refund. That's probably another book I need to write about guarantees. But um, there's a lot you can do to mitigate the uh, the downside of a re- of a money back guarantee. the The easy way to do this is you just test it on a small scale, one part of your business, and see how that works for you. It makes sense because you're meeting the clients where they are in terms of their risk tolerance, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes people have a desire, otherwise they wouldn't be reaching out to you to move toward a particular goal. They recognize they need some assistance with it. They want to accelerate their results, improve their results. And at the same time, there's so many concerns that might stop them. And so you're helping them to put the concerns aside, right. be and able you know, to step into the process. Exactly. When it comes to refunds too, we want to do business with people we like. We don't want to ask for our money back from our friends or from people I like. So I'm not saying become best friends with all your clients, but just engage them early on, make a personal connection. And you'll find that even if they're not satisfied with the work, as long as they're satisfied with you, you can uh, work something out uh, to both of your satisfaction and the refund will not be uh, much of an issue if it's an issue at all. It seems that you're conveying to the client your values you want to make it work for them. You care about the client. You care about the results. You care about their satisfaction. Exactly. And so there's a trust element that you have an opportunity to build there. And that engenders a client's desire also to work a little bit back and forth with you, especially if they've already made an investment in your services, rather than pause at that point and look for another solution. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You got it absolutely right. So before we move on to another tool, Kevin, can you provide an example of what two to three options might be for projects that you might present to a client, let's say if you're a services business? Mm-hmm. So you can name them the HEMDA project colon uh, standard, standard project. It would have three elements. And then we could call it the HEMDA project colon comprehensive version. It would have seven elements. So just pick seven things that you can do for a client, package them together, and that's the comprehensive version and then maybe remove three or four and that could be the basic version it's as simple as that um, so if someone asks for for example if someone asks me for um i want a sales page to sell my seminar can you write this for my website i'll say okay you know the the basic version is your sales page and the comprehensive version is the sales page uh plus a phone script to talk to anyone who wants to order by phone plus seven autoresponder emails so that anyone who requests more information you could be selling to them automatically while you're doing other things so that's a quick off the top of my head version of, you know, basic versus comprehensive. What you call it is not as important as the fact that you just give people two or three options. So instead of saying yes or no to one project, one price quote, they can say either or. Do you have any rules of thumb in terms of how you would distribute pricing across the two to three different options? Um, No, nothing hard and fast. There's a, I base it on value more than my hours. So it's not a matter of, is this going to take me, you know, three hours to do or, or eight hours to do? Is, is this going to potentially make you a half million dollars? Is this going to potentially make you a hundred thousand dollars? I price according to value. 
Right. So you tie it into the results that you're helping the exactly. client to achieve based yes. on your demonstration of your excellent listening skills in your summary right, of what you heard the prospect <laughs> said. I try. <laughs> yes. Okay, wonderful. And then there's a tool very much connected with that, which is the pain detector. Mm-hmm. Would you talk more about that? Sure. So that's in my book as well. The pain detector is, um, well, it's based on an uncomfortable truth about human nature is that we will typically run away from pain faster than we will run toward gain. Uh, you know, if you were to clock yourself with a stopwatch, I bet you're running faster away from a burning house, for example, than you are towards you know, a, a man or woman who's an underwear model and they're sitting in a chair across the room and they're very attractive. You're probably going to move faster from pain than toward gain. I know that's very horribly unscientific, but it is a fact. And I've just found it over the years that, you know, just pain sells more than gain. So the way I refer to the, uh, the pain detector, it's a way to use Google and to use blogs to find out the pain of your marketplace. So when I'm researching a project for a client, uh, I want to see, you know, what's the market saying about this product or service? So I want to go to Google and read about um, horror stories. So I had a client a couple of years ago. We were helping him buy uh, distressed real estate from people. And I went into Google and I typed rental property horror stories blog. So that the chain that you want to use in Google is blank, blank horror stories blogs, you know, fit, fitness horror stories blog. Weight loss horror stories blog, executive coaching horror stories blog. What you want to do is find people who are sharing horror stories, terrible things that have happened when they made a mistake in your industry. And so I found um, some blogs that had postings about rental property horror stories. And that's fine. That was a lot of good research. But here's where you take it a bit deeper. You want to look at the comments that are posted on the blog postings from people commenting on the story. Any blog post that gets a whole bunch of comments means it has struck a nerve with the market. People are so interested that they're actually taking the time to comment and share their own stories. So I went and did this and found all kinds of um, just incredibly horrible stories. I didn't know all this stuff goes on. Like, you know, tenants in my rental house were, um, you know, leaving a, a stack of McDonald's wrappers knee deep in the kitchen. Their cats and dogs were defecating all over the house. You know, they were ripping the toilets out. This is all real life stuff I was finding in, in blog postings and more importantly on the comments on the blog postings. So once you can identify real life horror stories about uh, people who may want to buy your product or service, you just simply use them in your sales letter or on your web page or in your email promotions. I did that for my client and I turned um, something that he was doing by phone. He had to sell people. He had to get people to sell them their, their distressed re, uh, real estate properties. It, it typically took about a 30 to 60 minute phone call and then an in-person meeting. But I interviewed him and recorded his call and transcribed it, turned it into about a 16 page sales letter. And then I added in all these horror stories to tell readers, you know, I understand your pain. Here's what happens to people in your situation. Well, that was just huge for him. I think um, the last I checked, he had put more than $770,000 away um, in the bank as a result of that sales letter. And this is a, a technique I've used over and over and over again for myself and my clients. If you can just identify, um, you know, blogs that are sharing real life horror stories about your product or service and then use the comments from those blogs 
you know, it's literally you're let you're letting the market write your sales promotion for you. You're using the words of the potential buyers of your product or service. There's no more powerful way to to really make a promotion than to let the market sell for you. So that's real, and it's free. Of course, this is another example of a of a tool. It's free. You just need Google or Bing or whatever. But um, when you can let the market write your sales promotion for you, that's typically a very good and, and and powerful thing. And that's what this lets you do. I would guess that it's very validating also, right? It forms the basis for connection that people feel understood. A real quick example off the top of my head, about six years ago, I wrote a sales promotion for a travel agency. The audience was brides, brides-to-be, typically women who were about 25 to 30. Well, I was about 40, 42 at the time. I had nothing in common with a, you know, 25 year old woman about to get married. So I used this technique. I found some blog postings about, you know, wedding disasters. And of course, there are a million in one. And I remember, I remember the language to this day. One woman was writing, no one understands what it's like to be the bride. Everyone wants a piece of you. Everyone wants your time. Um, it, it can make you crazy. Well, I used that exact phrase in the email promotion that I wrote. And I said, I, you know, I understand what you're going through. No one understands what it's like to be the bride. Everyone wants, you know, I was reading the, the, her comments back to the reader. I stuck them in the email. Bam. We sold something like $30,000 worth of destination honeymoons to Tahiti and other exotic locations because this market thought that another woman was speaking to them. Couldn't have been farther from the truth. <laughs> it was me, but I used, you know, the language of the market to write the promotion. So that's another example of how you can um, profit from this idea. Yeah, it was interesting. I guess that's the whole idea of change and movement. In order to be able to support and facilitate change and movement, you have to be with someone where they are. And then you can talk about aspirations and forward movement because we, we all think about our aspirations. And at the same time, part of the process of getting there is you have to at least be able to kind of be moved from your current position. I had a conversation with one person recently and she was sharing how she was feeling. And she said that when she has conversations with people, so many of them want to put her in a better place mm -hmm. right away. They want mm -hmm. to move her to that place of everything's going to be okay. It's going to all work out. It's a little upsetting and frustrating for her because she feels like she's not validated in where she is. So I guess I would guess that you have a combined approach, right? That you take a look at things from a positive frame in terms of, do you want to get to here X, Y, and Z? Like these are your aspirations, but you also need to first focus on where people are. Yeah, that's exactly true. And you know, the more I think about this, this is probably good advice to to help your marriage if you think about it because I, <laughs> I hope this doesn't sound sexist but it seems to me that guys are always trying to fix women we're always trying to fix things and so if a woman or your spouse comes to you and she's had a bad day you just want to fix her here drink this you know here i'll massage your neck you know so yeah i want to fix you and that's oftentimes not what you know what that other person wants they want to be validated and listened to so yes i absolutely agree with you i'm just finding another application for this idea maybe i'm an amateur marriage or marital counselor or something but i mean yeah it's, you know meet people where they are and uh, when you can win their trust by showing that you're listening and that you understand them then you can you know take them on a journey to where uh, they want to go but you have to meet them where they are absolutely well, essentially, you're talking about the psychology of, of the human being, and that applies in any context, mm -hmm. including marketing, but sometimes we don't think of it enough. We can apply it that way sometimes in our relationships, but we don't always apply it that way with our clients. Agreed, yes. We need to pause 
Yeah. Which, because what you're talking about seems like really a pause. You're pausing to say that you see the person and that you empathize with mm-hmm. them. Exactly. You raise an important point with, with marketing and selling and advertising. The temptation is to say, buy my widget. It'll make you, you know, thin and happy and rich. And that's the classic mistake. You know, fine, you can do that. You'll make a few sales. But the more you can talk about the person who may be buying your product or service and show that you understand them and have a conversation about where they are and that you, again, you understand. I've been there. I know what you're going through now. That kind of validation is critical. You've, you've got to, the, the higher your price point, the more you've got to show that you understand your buyer and that you uh, care about them and that you, you're not just trying to sell them something and run away. And that's a great connection with another tool that you talk about, the ideal client card, because I would guess that you're able to do that really well. If you label someone as an ideal client, then you're doing that well with them. Yeah, so that's a very good one to talk about next. Again, this one costs you nothing. This is that's one of my criteria. It's not like I'm a cheapskate, but I mean, I like to give people an infinite return on investment. If if this idea costs you nothing to implement, it makes you ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars. That's an infinite return on investment. So that's a pretty good idea. So backing up a bit, ideal clients. You know, you need to rank your clients. I don't want to sound elitist or anything, but not all people are created equal. There are some clients who are better than others. And in your in your database or in your Excel file, your card box of three by five cards, whatever, you really need to rank your clients. The A clients are the clients that you would clone if you could. These are the ideal people. They're fun to work with. They pay on time. They refer others. They buy again. These are your ideal clients. Typically, that's going to be about uh, five to 10 to 15% of your client base. It just works out that way. Your B clients are good people. They can ultimately become A clients, uh, but they're not there yet. And that's typically 20 to 60% of your client base. And the remainders are Cs and they're not going to ever become Bs or As. And so you want to kind of limit your work with them or maybe even cut them loose. And I'm continually ranking and re-ranking my clients. They don't stay that way forever. But um, once I get a clear picture in my head of who my top, you know, five, 10 clients are, because I don't work with a lot of people. But um, the ideal client card is something I learned from a really, really good book. It's called Smarter, Faster, Better. And the author is Charles Duhigg. He also wrote The Power of Habit, I believe. So it's a really, really good book. The idea is based on uh, a story in the book about a, um, a school district in Cincinnati and they had a bunch of students who were failing and they had all the latest technology, including, you know, some online dashboards that showed at a glance how all the students were doing. But the problem is the students were still failing. So someone came up with a really brilliant idea of telling the teachers, hey, what you need to do is make a three by five card for every single student, write down their key uh, success indicators, you know, their test scores um the the latest letter grade that they got all the you know the numbers that matter and what you need to do Mr or Ms teachers you need to go into this room every day and go through your cards and look at all the students individually and just make a note of you know what you're doing or how you can improve or what have you so you need to physically handle these cards that represent all of your students so of course there was a lot of pushback from the teachers initially but what they found was that when they were physically handling these cards each day, um, they were making new connections in their brain. Uh, You know, the neurons were firing differently and they were gaining insights by actively handling 
the information that they never received by passively looking at the information in the online dashboard. So that in itself was pretty cool. But when they were in this room, you know, notating their cards each day, they were also talking to other teachers and sharing ideas. And one teacher would say, hey, Sally takes the bus home with Billy. I wonder if we could have, I don't know, Sally coach Billy on reading because I think she can help. Or, you know, Frank and Joe are, are brothers. They're a great apart. But what if, you know, Frank and Joe can work together? So they were just exchanging ideas about their students and test scores went up. And the more they handled these cards and paid attention to the students individually, the more scores went up. At the end of the year, I believe the uh, the number of students meeting the state gate guidelines, I'm looking at the number here, it increased by 300%. It was a 300% increase in effectiveness for the teachers with zero technology. It was just using these uh, index cards and, and interacting with them regularly. So I thought, well, that's really cool. What if I could do that with clients? And what if I can increase you know, the value of my clients by handling little three by five cards of them? Turns out it, it actually absolutely worked for me. What I do for each of my ideal clients, and I'm looking on my desk right now, I have one, two, three, seven index cards on my desk right now. I'll shuffle them here in front of the microphone. On each index card, I've got uh, some data. I've got their picture that I got off of LinkedIn. I've got the month they started working with me. I've got their source, whether it's a referral or whether it was, you know, an ad on LinkedIn. I've got their lifetime revenue, how much money they've given me over their entire buying lifetime, then people they've referred to me. And then I also have a section called Upside where I write down uh, potential new projects I can be doing for them. So I started doing this about a year and a half ago. And what I found was, this is from my book. These are some case studies. I, had, I ended up doubling my monthly retainer from one client. He actually insisted on buying more hours from me. And it was because, I, was, I, I think it was because I was flipping his card over in my fingers every day, thinking of new ways to be used to him. So uh, it, you know, it brought in an extra $3,000 a month for several months after that, just because I was more useful to him. Um, I got a retainer client from uh, another referral source who gave me one of my other clients. And I was, it was because I was handling the card of the person who was referred to me. And I thought about the referral source, went back and contacted them. Boom, I got another referral. That was a very lucrative project. And then I got a referral and a, pro, uh, and a new project from another client after handling his card every day for a few weeks. So that's just what happened last year before I wrote the book. There have been more referrals and more projects as a result. So this is unscientific, of course, but you, you could not pry these um, ideal clients' cards out of my hand. You, you'd need to take them at gunpoint. They're that valuable to me. And it, I'm forced to look at my clients every day. I'm forced to look at their picture. And, you know, ask myself, how am I being useful to this person? And it's absolutely changed my business and made, you know, my clients are more loyal. They're more lucrative. They refer more. And again, this costs you nothing. All you need to do is spend a little bit of time, get their picture off LinkedIn or Facebook or wherever, and create a little um, index card for each of your ideal clients. Start with two or three, but I've got seven on my desk now. And um, they've been a game changer for me. I'm hearing that it's a very strategic approach. There's so many positives that come from it because it allows you to deepen your relationship with the client. It allows you to stay relevant, so to speak, with the client, continue to expand the value that you're offering. And I, and I would guess that it impresses the client. We, everyone loves to be thought of and to be reached out to in a way that you're helping them to be progressive in their own business by thinking about things for them. Yeah, and you know, you don't, and you shouldn't tell clients, hey, I was looking at your card today. I don't 
tell people on the outside that this is going on. So this can be an internal process. But you know, the, at the end of the day, when you're when you're handling information tangibly with your fingers, you're at, you're making completely different connections in your brain. Completely different neurons are firing versus when you're taking in information passively from your you know your database. When a name is in Infusionsoft or in Salesforce or wherever, it's passive and it's just a name. But when I'm looking at you know Jeb and Anthony and Bill, uh, I'm looking at their cards here, touching them, looking at their their pictures, they're infinitely more tangible. They're more real. They're literally real to me and I'm paying more attention to them and I'm waking up every day with new ideas to help them. So yes, there's really no downside that I've ever found to doing this. Kevin, have you found that your services have changed or evolved through this process? Um, You mean the ideal client card process or marking multipliers in general or something different? Well, working with the ideal client card, because it's a very specific exercise that you're doing. And of course, when you're looking at your ideal client, then Mm -hmm. even if you're not working with a lot of clients at the same time, you're still magnifying that whatever your findings are applies to a lot of other people. Right. So the answer is yes. I mean, it's based on, again, the story that I read in the book, uh, Smarter, Better, Faster by Charles Duhigg. Remember, he was saying that teachers were exchanging ideas with each other. And they started uh, teaching their students differently. They came up with insights that they never would have thought of on their own. I'm looking at two cards in my desk here. There's Jeb, for example, and I wrote a print ad for him that appeared in the local newspaper. And then I'm looking at Anthony, and I wrote a very good web page promotion for him, but hadn't not yet written uh, a print ad. So I proposed a print ad to Anthony, and he said yes. This was a year ago. He put the project on hold maybe a few months uh, after that. But he was very excited about it. And I've actually proposed ideas and projects to other clients that did get buy-in and that did get sales. It's only because I was looking at the other cards of other clients and thought, well, wait a minute. I did this for Jeb. I could do this for Tina. Or I did this for Jill. I can do this for Bill. And so, yeah, it's, again, looking at what you've done for your other clients and comparing the cards, you, you can't help but get new insights. And these are, these are always going to move you forward. Right. And then you also have the demonstrated track record. You can offer the example of what you did for uh, the other exactly. client and what the results yeah, were. Yeah. By the way, I made, you know, $78,000 for Jeb. Would you like to know how I did that? Yeah. That, that conversation is, is fun to have. Phenomenal. So let's talk a little bit more about offline, hands on marketing materials that you produce. So you talk in your book about the paper email and also the handwritten sales letter. Mm-hmm. So the paper email is probably the, easiest one to convey by podcast. Basically, a paper email is something I invented for myself in 2009. I had just seen um, Seth Godin, who's one of my heroes. He was speaking at a, at a conference. I wanted to send him a thank you note. And I wrote an email to him. I was about to press the send button. And I realized, well, wait a minute, he's going to get 100 emails today from people who saw him. Mine's not going to stand out. And I hate you know, I hate to be ignored. <laughs> and I thought, well, I could fax it to him. Yeah. Or I could send a FedEx. And I thought, well, what if I just print and mail the thing? So I, instead of pushing the send button, I pushed the print button. And um, I added a little PS. I sent you this uh, paper email to make absolutely positively sure I got through your spam filter. And then I found his mailing address, which was easy, plopped it in an envelope and sent it off and didn't think anything more about it. About a week later, um, there was a voicemail and it was from Seth. He called me from his car because I could hear the road noise. He said, Kevin, I just got your super nice note. I wanted to thank you for it and let you know that I got it. Uh, this is Seth Godin. Thanks very much. I thought, well, that was interesting. I just got one of the busiest and most successful people in the world to you know, call me from his car. And so 
whenever I have an accidental success like that, I try to systematize it and make it happen predictably. So I started sending out these things for want of a better term. I called them paper emails. It's basically anyone who has ignored an email from me, you know, more than twice, let's say, if they're a high value prospect or a very important client, uh, I'll print it and mail it to them. And I call it the paper email. And I actually give it a title in big red letters, paper email at the top of the page. And I'll, I'll just give you the opening that I typical, typically use. It says, I sent you an email yesterday, but didn't hear back from you. You know, life happens. I understand. So to make absolutely sure this message doesn't get caught in a spam filter, I'm sending you this paper email. And the rest of the message is whatever you sent in your previous email. If you do nothing else but that, you're going to get more people calling you back, more people sending you an email saying, I got your paper email. I've had people take pictures of it and post it online. I've had people forward it to their friends. It's, it's basically direct mail for super busy people. It's, it's nothing more than that. But by changing the medium from online to offline, the same message can have a vastly more, uh, you know, a vastly bigger impact. And so paper emails I've used for years now, and uh, they're always one of my fallback tools. I send, I still send them about once a week to my own prospects and clients. And it's the, it's probably the thing that resonates both most with people who buy my book. That's where I get people um, sending me the most uh, success stories and the most feedback. So the paper email, uh, you know, if you've got a message that's being ignored by email, just print the thing, put it in an envelope, send it. If you want even better results, call. Um, probably the day you think it arrives or the day after. A, a, a letter plus a phone call typically gets about 50% higher response than just a letter by itself. And by the way, any you know direct mail piece that you send, if it's in a hand-addressed envelope with a live stamp, not a meter or not an indicia, uh, if it's a hand-addressed envelope with a live stamp, it's going to get opened about you know, 70, 80, 90% of the time if it gets to the recipient versus email, which gets opened about 20 to 30% of the time on a very, very good day. So you're looking at at least, you know, 300% better response, give or take, doing nothing more than mailing your email. So that's why I like it so much. And that's why uh, people who buy my book and join my marketing multipliers club, they, they seem to like it a great deal as well. You're suggesting combining different communication approaches and you responded to a couple of the questions I had in mind, <laughs> which is taking a look at preferred communication approaches. Some people just tend to be more responsive to text messages than they exactly. might to phone calls exactly. or to emails. So you're taking that into account. And at the same time, you're saying that you can really multiply the chances that the message is going to get across if you combine different communication approaches, if you see that one You've tried a couple of times and it, and you haven't gotten a response. Mm -hmm. You have to remember that the way you prefer to communicate is not always the way that prospects and clients prefer to communicate. So you may love email. Well, your prospects may not. Or they may be reading your emails on their mobile phone while they're in the bathroom. I mean, is that a really good selling environment? You know, standing at a urinal? Uh, no. So I want to make sure that I, if it's a very important message, I never trust email by itself. And neither should anyone listening. <laughs> It's really helpful, Kevin, to hear this because our perceptions sometimes really don't match what happens in reality. Like I might think, well, how many people are going to really open something that comes in the mail? Right? People tend oftentimes because they're getting so much in their mail that they don't find useful to them. They go through it quickly. Right. They might not check their mail as often. Or maybe you have a gatekeeper who is going to the mail and passing only certain things along to you. 
And here you are saying, though, based on your experience, that it is an effective approach. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's just one leg of the, of the stool. So mail by itself, fine, but it's better if it's combined with the phone and with email, with uh, you know your website, social media. That's five different legs. That's a pretty strong t- table at that point when you've got four, five, six legs. Kevin, I want to thank you so much for sharing these tools. And I also want to invite listeners to have the opportunity to benefit more from your tools, some of the ones that they haven't heard about today. And you shared with me a generous offer for listeners in the U.S. to try out your marketing tools and also to receive a free copy of your new book, Marketing Multipliers. So how can they take you up on these offers? Well, that's a very good question. So (laughs) uh, what I'd love to do for folks is if you go to www.marketingmultipliers.com, Suppliers.com. You can, if you're in the United States, you can request a free trial box. It's a, it's a box. It's an offline uh, um, experience. I practice what I preach. So you can get a box in the mail with 11 of my best tools, including the paper email and 10 others. And that comes to you for a dollar, just uh, shipping. If you like it, you can stick around. And every month I send a new box with a new tool, typically with a food surprise as well, because I want to deliver an experience to people. It's typically chocolate. This month I'm mailing Altoids to my members because chocolate tends to melt in the summer, (laughs) something I learned over the years. And so depending on the season, you're going to get chocolate, some sort of a goodie, because I want to make people happy. But that's what comes every month in the box. And um, if you do that, just reply to your email confirmation and mention uh, that you heard me talking with Hemda uh, on the Turn the Page podcast. And if you do that, I'll also send you a free copy of my book, uh, Marketing Multipliers. I'll have it shipped out to you by US Mail. That's got some different tools than you'll find in the box, but it's a it's another way to get my, uh, my ideas and tools and put them to work in your business. So go over to marketingmultipliers.com and request your free trial box and then reply to the email confirmation. Mention the Turn the Page podcast, and I will also ship you a free copy of my book, Marketing Multipliers. Kevin, for those who are based outside the U.S., is there an opportunity to purchase your book? Yes, you can get it off of Amazon. Uh, whatever the shipping is to your country, um, it, it'll be detailed there. But um, the reason I my Marketing Multipliers Club is for U.S. people only. I don't. It's not a matter of discrimination. It's a matter of shipping food overseas. It just doesn't. It takes two months to get through Canada Customs, for example. Uh, and even longer to Australia or wherever. So I just, um, the, the boxes are for U.S. folks, but uh, you can certainly get my book anywhere in the world if you just visit Amazon and look up uh, Marketing Multipliers. Thank you, Kevin, for your generosity. And I would absolutely endorse your book to people wherever in the world they are. I had a chance to read through it and found it incredibly useful. So I really appreciate so much all that you're offering. Thank you, Hemda. It's been my pleasure uh, sharing ideas with you. I think um, it was a lot of fun and uh, we broke some new ground for people. Yes, and I want to invite listeners also, if you have comments or unanswered questions about today's episode, I welcome you to share them by emailing me at hosthemda at gmail.com. You can also share comments and questions by following me on Twitter at Hemda Mizrahi and liking us on Facebook at Life and Career Choices. Until next time, remember to make the grass greener where you are. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, inviting you to turn the page. Thank you for tuning in to our program. Till next week's show, enjoy your weekend and make one change in your life before then.